Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is brought to you by the employee-owned company Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company committed to making the best materials for working artists and is dedicated to working with artists to inform them on how their paints work. Golden often does workshops at schools showing students all the capabilities of their materials. They're located in upstate New York, and you can find them in art stores or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including the MFA, their certificate program, the marathon program, evening and Saturday classes, and a distinguished lecture series that is free and open to the public. The school's internationally recognized marathons are two-week intensive courses in drawing, painting, and sculpture. All levels are welcome to enroll for the summer 2019 marathons. Apply online today at nyss.org. Matthew Chambers is an artist born in Boise, Idaho, who lives and works in Bozeman, Montana. He received his BFA from the University of Miami and his MFA from the Art Center in Los Angeles. He's had solo shows at Praz de Levade in Los Angeles and Paris, Zach Fuhrer Gallery, Untitled, Hezzy Cohen in Tel Aviv, Rental Gallery, The Rubel Collection, Jack Hanley Gallery, and more. His work has been covered in the New York Times, Interview Magazine, Art in America, Art Info, Freeze, and many others. He's also the co-member with Eric Mast of the collective Dream Street, who make hand-screen shirts, including the Sound and Vision anniversary tee we did a little while back. Matthew stopped by my studio while in town for the opening of his current show at Marinero Gallery titled Crazy Horse West. Here's our conversation. You know, that they were there and they cared. I think that's really all you mm-hmm. you need, right? Yeah. I don't know. What was your uh, growing <laughs> up like? It was very stable. But like my, my parents were both older. My mom's parents were both deaf and she grew up on a dry farm in North Dakota. So was, there's no irrigation. It's just like you, you lived with the rain. But because of that, she had an ultimate sense of causality. She didn't like life and death were part of the same process. Like, yeah. It wasn't mystified at all. And then, yeah, my my dad grew up in, in kind of rural Idaho, but in a place that was, uh, they had industry at the time, so mm-hmm. it was pretty multicultural. And yeah, he, they both just had work ethic, but they were older when I, when I was born. And then my mom had, I have a sister that's a half-sister that's 11 years older. Mm-hmm. So she had been married young, and then her first husband had passed away. So there was, like, she had to go back to that, like, farm you know like sustenance farming mentality to take care of herself and And that's a lot going on there yeah (laughs) but they i mean like once they decided it wasn't trauma for them like it was totally fine you adapt i guess you adapt right exactly and like you said with your son it's this new that just becomes the paradigm after a certain amount of time and you expect that like right i mean i think you i mean we were talking earlier about 
you know, you can spend all this time in your head. And I think that's really important for artists. And they really allowed me to do that because of this sense of distance they had from their own emotional lives, you know, but that also really enriched mine. And that was maybe the only difference that I had is that I could live extremely emotionally or like because I was in my own head, I was looking to empathize so much harder just as like a level to understand people. Yeah. I mean, well, did you, so you were born in Idaho, born in Idaho outside of Boise and in like the farming area. And then, so it wasn't like, it wasn't, there was industry, but it wasn't super populated. Like it was, right? Yeah, it was sparse. My, my dad was, you remember the Winston Wolf, the Harvey Keitel character yeah, from yeah. Pulp Fiction? Yep. Like that was, he had a sense of <laughs> modesty, but was only brought in to solve these humongous quagmires. Like, you know, the Taipei subway that's, yeah. you know, collapsing or they don't know how to fix it. Like he was just brought in to solve problems. He and was that calm too. He just, he's just had, he's like a problem solver brain and has yeah. no sense of, uh, like he can't promote for himself, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did he but, drink his coffee with a lot of cream and a lot of sugar? No, he was a, remember he, that bit? Yeah. <laughs> I was not like, oh, there's someone else from New York who likes a lot of cream and sugar in their coffee. <laughs> so, um, well, growing up, yeah, well, I guess your sister, since she was older, were you kind of like an only child in a way? Very much you so, know what I yeah. Mean? Like, I feel like if there's a gap of over like eight years, they're kind of in another stage, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I guess they could they would care for you or babysit or whatever at that age, like 11 years older. Yeah. It took her a while for her to think of me not as just a little twerp that yeah. had had a much easier rearing up than, than she did. Right. But um, I think we connected later because like she was able to see that I was wired so different than her yeah Um, and that I mean I think that was really nice but also getting to have someone older and like seeing the the guys that she dated and that just I mean I think opened up a lot of worlds for me and she felt supportive and had this emotional life that maybe my parents didn't have so Mm -hmm. it was that was like the bridge that we had but as we get older it becomes like we've made different deals with life and yeah. it's still nice to like in the same way that you have friends to check back but it was re- like we had to to make a friendship much later yeah and as opposed to just be like it wasn't like i th- when i meet people now that come from larger families they're really good at just being like oh people are fine like that person's that person yeah, like yeah. i'm gonna carry on with me and it wasn't i was never set up for that because so. it's just one right yeah you're just like oh you're the other person here yeah and we're I'm, not the same yeah i'm i'm looking for connection with these right. with everyone and yeah everyone else like the with, if you come from a, a bigger family you're just able to go like yeah i like greg for this reason and i like Susie for this reason and yeah jim I'll discard I the rest to. yeah <laughs> but for me it's like oh I, you know how can i connect with all these people yeah. yeah i had a friend growing up who i think he had nine siblings maybe eight or nine but that house was, it was a tiny house, you know, they had they didn't have any money at all. And it was, they were crammed in, but the house was like a hostel. Mm-hmm. Like you would only see certain members of the family. Like there were a few people that I just never saw ever. And, but you would hear, hear their names and like they, you know, you could choose who you interact with. Can you imagine <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> Ignore half of your siblings. Like, I'm going to hang out years. with these two siblings yeah. and the other ones, whatever. It's a different story. I can't imagine. But I guess you would be, 
it would be useful as far as like navigating relationships and multiple people if mm-hmm. you grew up in that kind of household. And then probably a healthy dose of like if you if you do want the spotlight of really working for that spotlight, <laughs> like an only child, they get it. Yep. You know what I mean? Uh, they, you to a like, fault sometimes. Yeah, no, they just expect it. You know, like, everything comes to me. But if you've got that many siblings, it must be, you know, a whole different experience. Yeah. You probably also have the experience of having almost like multiple parents. You know, it's, if you're towards the bottom yeah. of that totem pole. That's right. Like you see different managerial styles. Yeah. You can get your ass handed to by more than two people. Exactly. <laughs> Which is the normal setup. Well, when you were little, was was the creative gene in there? You know, did you start that young? I mean, I feel like most most kids in general are drawing mm-hmm. a lot, and in your stuff, I see drawing. I mean, there's a lot of drawing. Mm-hmm. It's prevalent. You know, was that something you were doing a lot when you were a kid? I mean, I would draw like the Three Stooges or something, but it wasn't yeah. until much later that I realized it as a skill set. Like, I I tend to function off of my energy and then try to dictate that into some it's still it's still communication for me and um i think you spend enough time alone you learn how to create narratives in your head Mm -hmm. and a lot of times like the work of the drawings came from just those narratives poking you know the iceberg poking out of the water finally um i wasn't a kid that would i was never a comic kid and you know i could I was like an Eagle Scout. I spent a lot of times in in the mountains. And so it was really more about getting my hands dirty and learning by doing, I guess. You know, like I would be more likely to be digging like little tunnels and eating the worms out of those than I was to be sketching anything. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine you had the space for it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's only now that because of my mom's upbringing, like they... They had such a healthy relationship to creativity. It's you know they take care of the like the animals. They would do all these other things, and then they realized you had to have some other outlet. You had to scratch these creative itches. So yeah. you know that whether it was wood carving or my mom became a quilter. Or can't you know there's there's practical ways that they got out that itch. They were very well rounded people because like labor wasn't democratized for them. Right, right. And I think my dad as a problem solver, he was into woodworking he made me wood toys Mm -hmm. and but it wasn't because he was into the craft of woodworking he was like spending time with his son was important and also just getting to impress like how could he make a like a functional monster truck out of a bunch of two by fours yeah Yeah. Um, and it's making but it's then it's also serving a purpose yeah it's not just for you know the razzle dazzle of it in a way exactly that's cool so when, um, how was school for you back then? Was it a big, was it a sm- I'm guessing a smaller <laughs> school? <laughs> I think by the time I hit high school, the valley, like the, the Boise Valley, and I lived on like the, the northern side of it where it was more rural, um, was growing. But I, I was on the rural side yeah. and I went to a high school that had opened the previous year. So it was... There wasn't like a precedent. It wasn't like people's older siblings had gone for a long time. It felt very new. And it felt more of like a hypothetical high school experience. Canary in a coal mine of education. Exactly. (laughs) But being like rural, but being around suburbs, like I could try on identities. I had had a job at a skateboard shop from the time that I was 14. Yeah. 
and ah, skateboarding. Yeah. <laughs> it was the connection, right? Definitely. I feel like that was such a huge connection for me to creativity. Yeah. And so many people I talk to from, you know, our generation. Well, I think, are we near the same age? I'm 37. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a few Close enough. Older. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that was like the thing, you know, yeah. there were the magazines, there were the stickers, there was the, the look of it, the feel mm-hmm. of it. There's a little bit of the edge. Yeah. You know? I, I found like being around multi-generations was always really exciting. There was always kids that you skateboarded with that were younger. Yeah. And everyone else was pretty much older and trying to, you know, get Trojan horses yeah, to yeah. you, you know, like disseminate their version of, of culture. Right. Um, that is really true because I, I remember we had a friend, I forget the guy's name, but he would drive us. He was old enough to drive, so he mm-hmm. was way older than we were at that point. He would drive us to skate parks that were, you know, like, half an hour 40 minutes away and i had a thought of like wow this friend is a lot older than me you know what i mean it didn't feel normal in a way but it was cool it's like he's taking us to skate parks or whatever Mm -hmm. but i think that's that's what happens is you go to these you know a skate park you go to the playground wherever you're skating and you meet people and it didn't matter if they were way older than your other friends or or younger for that matter uh but you 100%. Bond. You yeah. bond over that. It's yeah. so tribal that, yeah, that the reference set is pretty contained. Yeah. And like the the inlets and the outlets to this, you know, Columbia River that is skateboarding right, are, right. are pretty contained. You know, you can read an interview with someone and, and learn about a musician. But for the most part, it works best in youth culture because for better or worse, like skateboarders are knuckleheads. Right, you know? right. Like there's not a lot of time in pushing around and gripping your board to read books. Right, that's true. <laughs> yeah, usually get into some sort of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, so when you were when you were skateboarding, were you, they, they, it kind of goes hand in hand with music. Yeah. Were you a big music head? No, were you into a lot of, did I, you play anything or were you just? I always had friends that were musicians, so I was in bad punk bands, and I think there was that decision when you have to start really fabricating and sticking to an identity in, in late middle school and high school, yeah. just to, you know, like, the, the prison sentimentality, like, who who do you have to protect <laughs> you? you? Yeah. With, yeah. Um, that I was a kid with, I was a rural kid that thought he was a crust punk, yeah. <laughs> you know, and being at a school that wasn't, there wasn't punks around there wasn't i mean pus heads from boise and there was like house shows and Mm -hmm. pretty cool things so there was older kids through that but there was an experience where another one of the punk um, the punk kids were always older than me they were i was a freshman they were at least two years older than me but they were welcoming as well and there was there was this quintessential moment where the the jocks decide to say that you know like they they said that we had made out in the hallway and just like it, it it people were ready to jump on that as like the sense of other yeah and like we didn't care you know like we were trying to start food not bombs or like trying to participate right. in things like just like finding our our ideal set and I think when the like the older kids graduated and having this experience where the group think or the scare tactics that a couple of like big guys in letterman jackets started and wanted to beat us up like i realized like for me it became more important to like be behind the scenes you know like yeah. i have my creativity like i didn't need to show it as much and <laughs> self-preservation <laughs> yeah exactly but i was also i mean i got drawn more into the skateboarding world there but not being a natural athlete but because I could, there was like systems to navigate like I almost, and I could still get out my issues. Yeah. They didn't stop me from listening to the music but it 
it added a more intellectual bent to the way that I looked at music. And that's when I got more like bands like Crass or, or their, yeah. you know, crowd became much more interesting for me. Right. When was now. that? I mean, when I was skateboarding, we had this split. I was listening to a lot of punk and a lot of sort of like alternate, you know, like the Smiths and the Cure and that stuff was happening, New Order. But then mm-hmm. at the same time, like Public Enemy and some mm-hmm. of that early rap music. I mean, were those, did you have a similar? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew them through skateboarding, but because like when I would go to work at the shop every afternoon or dealing with the kid, they, I mean, they made a, around that time there was a, they started building a park that was under a bridge. So it's a great place for kids to hang out. And yeah smoke weed or drink at the wrong times of day. They, you know, they could escape their families, but they had a very different upbringing. So it was only through those kids. And then I went to undergrad in Miami and all the skateboard friends that I met, like it was, it was all hip hop. So yeah. it was like a real indoctrination. <laughs> it's like, it's okay there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it made sense there. Like right. living in Montana now, I haven't listened to rap music in three years. It just, sounds so wrong in that environment it's funny right yeah. how the environment <laughs> like if i listen to like palace brothers mm-hmm. in new york city it has like a different feel you know yeah yeah you feel quaint or like you have to tap into a sense of nostalgia almost. right right <laughs> like i'm putting myself in this space right now you know mm-hmm. but when you're driving like i remember driving across the country in high school and we would listen to a lot of that stuff you know mm-hmm. like the rachels or or you know things that were or Dirty Three, like bands yeah. like that out in, you know, Montana or South Dakota and places like that, like the Badlands, like mm-hmm. just made sense. Yeah. Felt right. hundred <laughs> percent. Like certain music, like, you know, salsa sounds good in certain areas. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I wonder about that because all of like the alternative or the college radio stuff happened to me once I moved to Miami and it was not a cultural scene like art basel started when i was going to university in miami so that was a big art thing for me but college radio was this thing that i you know like we had rotation and then i could dig through the stacks and listen to everything so again it was it was just i had all these sponge periods and but i think it also dictated like i wanted to start driving across the country mm-hmm. Just so I, those those songs made sense to me. And oh, it was yeah. really like I did an overnight radio show for several years, and it was only like when Miami was completely turned down could I listen to like any Will Oldham project. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but also yeah. like long form music only made sense in Miami after dark, and and it was like a like a way that I could tune into my head. And and I yeah. think like now I, I really like jazz, but it was from from that. Like, right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, you can listen to that music anywhere, but if you listen to, you know, like old Louis Armstrong and the Hot Fives in Louisiana, mm-hmm. it just feels different, mm-hmm. you know? Or if you're listening to the blues in Chicago, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like certain music just has. Remember that band Friends of Dean Martinez? Mm-hmm. Like that out in the desert, like in Arizona? <laughs> it's like, does it get any better? Yeah. It's like perfect for that location. But I guess that's what's great about that kind of music, too, is that you can listen to that stuff and just kind of escape to that land in a way. Mm-hmm. You know? I, mean, I have a hard time lis- watching Jim Jarmusch films now, but every time I think of Mystery Train, oh, like the yeah. fact that it happens in Memphis and it's centered all around these. But I guess even, is it Hustle and Flow that's also Memphis, but it's like the rap movie? Like yeah. That context, it really makes a difference to, you know, to... to 
digest it in the place or at least with an awareness of a, of a sense of uh, like setting right. I guess yeah and I love in Mystery Train too that it's the Japanese couple who are going there as the pilgrimage yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a different cultural connection you know but mm-hmm. you're going to ground zero for that kind of music it's really it's such a great dichotomy of like we get to follow them too and like be the alter like the, the best estates we could possibly right. be in Memphis through them you know yeah and, yeah definitely so, well, how did you get to Florida, though? What, what was that? <laughs> what what so, drove you there? I mean, that seems... <laughs> um, I think I want, like, because of my parents' upbringing and their sense of pragmatism and me being a creative person in my head, I learned this balance where I made, made actually like a checklist of all the schools that I applied to, but they had a rule for my sister and I that we had to leave the state for college. Mm-hmm. And we were expected to go to college, but we could do what we wanted. And applying around, I, I still want, I thought I was maybe going to be in the skateboard world and thought I wanted to, to I was starting to watch films at that point. It was mm-hmm. like a way that I could travel. And I, so I wanted to go to USC mainly because at the time it was a, Film school. It was a film school, but it was also a skate spot. It was a very famous oh, yeah. skateboard spot. Good weather um, for skating. Yeah, and then going there, there was you know really pretty girls that I didn't see in Idaho. Yeah. And then I ended up getting a scholarship to University of Miami. Went down there, and I can't remember like if if there was. I remember going to to grad school to tour grad schools, and I went to Art Center, and the they just had humongous paintings hung up in the school so i remember that was like oh this this like really checks the box it's yeah. like this there's signifiers that like i want to be part of my life yeah what i'm gonna my, do is welcome here exactly <laughs> yeah um but i think in miami it was just that there was i mean there was a skateboard community slightly but like mm-hmm. they didn't have a filmer so it's like oh i could fit in like there's a there's a place for me like it, it wasn't completely outside of it yeah and also just yeah the it's just the whole yeah it was such a culture shock that that i wanted to accept that into my life like i was never a person that needed to go places that i already you know was already welcome right so well how'd it go it was great because miami's such a cultural wasteland like (laughs) there was a couple of so i studied film and then later got a like a i got a double major i have a degree and not i don't have a bfa but i have a ba Mm -hmm. and there was Harvard film theory professors that like really taught me that I only learned to think critically about, but also told me to, you know, watch all these films. And because there weren't people that actually cared about filmmaking, um, I could be in their office every day and go like, why did Godard do this? Yeah. You know, like, why is this shot there? And I'm not a, I was not a technical person, but like I could get into that theory and, in like a because like film theory or like film criticism is based on you know you you explain the scene and then you say what that scene means yeah where i feel like art that's not exactly the case like you can like a critic can just start from their own hierarchy they don't have to right. describe the work um and just for me it helped it really helped to it's just you know there's a lot of stuff running around in my head so yeah. to to solidify it in that way and then i ended up just doing independent studies with other professors that just thought I was like the the curious one like I was not it wasn't a school that had like a canon that they were pushing yeah and Miami didn't have a canon and I eventually like realized that the skateboarders were knuckleheads and I was 
taking classes and then going and filming all night with these people. Mm -hmm. And so once I pulled out of that, like I just soaked it all in. I was for about seven years. I watched about five or six movies a day and everything. Like I would watch everything. Yeah. Um, and and you were skate, you were filming skate videos, filming skate videos. But then I burnt out like meeting the heroes or the meeting these people that were, were pronouns rather than just your buddies. Um, that had like a public identity, just like I wasn't, I didn't want that. I wasn't getting the conversations that I wanted. And it it was like a a real push for me to grow and and realize that I, like that wasn't where I wanted to be. And then I remember like I was making, because I was watching all these um, films, I was able to make some, some films through the school, like to have the school pay for the film stock to be developed. Mm -hmm. And I wrote these really bad pretentious but kind of like goofy art films that what was your biggest influence back then i mean you mentioned Godard, mm-hmm. were you in the new wave and stuff or i mean i watched all of that i think he was the most interesting for probably for any film student but i really liked pasolini more like yeah. he was more humanist you know like and in and feel as if he was exploring things in a different country that were closer to my life but i think the stuff that like the like the British kitchen sink, the the German new wave, especially Fassbinder as like yeah. a precocious young person, mm-hmm. like forty one films in eleven years. Like now, I prefer Bresson, who did eleven films in the same time. <laughs> but right. but it's also because like I'm probably wired more like Fassbinder. Right. <laughs> um, and then it was re- I did like a summer study abroad in the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. and then there's this famous film school that um, Milos Forman came from and then the Czech New Wave they were very poetic all these films I don't think I know that um, genre uh, I mean probably so all, Milos Forman made a few films that were really great like Fireman's Ball Loves of a Blonde and then there was Vera Chitlova which I think is a touchstone for a lot of young people she made this film Daisies that's mm-hmm. It's just cut together really visually, and it's really exciting. But then at the same time, the the Russians came into the to Czechoslovakia and just rolled in with their tanks. And these filmmakers had to go underground, but they because they had something to push against, like they actually had real things to to make movies about. Yeah. Um, and it's really more like I I didn't get involved in the stories. I got more involved in the fact that I could watch every single Godard film in like two days back mm-hmm. to back. It was really the space in between the films. Yeah. Like seeing where he grew, seeing where the ideas grew, because I was young enough that I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I needed to go other places, like stopping skateboarding for a long time and stopping participating in that community was, you know, a way for me to, to go to these other places. Yeah. You know? It's and like a retrospective with an artist <laughs> when you can see it's like I don't know exactly where I'm going. Mm-hmm. But if you see this artist you know if it's like i don't know picasso or van gogh or something all those changes they make over time you can kind of it's it's almost as impressive the the moves they're making and you can watch them thinking through ideas and stuff that becomes informative to you know your process it's like oh yeah Yeah. you can you know make a left turn it's okay to do that or you know you can flip this totally on its head and something (laughs) good can come out of that or watching people you know hit a brick wall when it comes to certain aspects of their work yeah but it's always really interesting to see the totality of someone's work like that you know very the, much i so. was a victim of uh when i was in undergrad there was a uh 
like a movie rental place mm-hmm. that had like a 25 cent rental. <laughs> so you could rent, you know, a movie, a VHS. We rented overnight for 25 minutes or for 25 uh, cents. And then they had like one big aisle that was the 25 cent, not the new releases, but the classics. Mm-hmm. So I think my film education was informed by what they had at that one store. Of course. <laughs> like, cause there were, I don't think there were any Czech films or, you know, I would just move through whatever they had and there were lots of was great it, ones. Was it a curated section they had or was it just foreign films, action films? It was, I believe there was a foreign section and there was classics and, um, yeah, and I think it was like art, I don't know how they, you know, named it, but like art house movies, you know, yeah. just fringe stuff. But, and then they had the mainstream, but I moved through that aisle, you know, yeah. one, one summer, I just, it was like, how many movies can I watch? <laughs> yeah. But that's, it's kind of like, cause Jarmusch was in there. So I saw mm-hmm. all those movies, mm-hmm. which I loved. But it wasn't the days where you could just Google someone and on the side it would say, if you like this director, you'll like this, this, this. You know, I just moved through the aisle. Of course. It's like, if you rented this movie, you might want to run, rent the one to the right of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I only saw the things that were basically there. And then when I got out of school, I, didn't, I wasn't watching TV anymore. Really. I would go see some movies at the Film Forum and stuff like that. But I kind of, that was my... My summer. Yeah. <laughs> but I saw a lot, like all the Godard movies. My favorite was Jacques Tati. Yeah, he's, he's I the love best. those yeah. movies. Because they were just like paintings to mm-hmm. me. They, they're, they're just like moving images, you know. And he was, they're so visual in nature. But I mean, uh, we've decided to spend so much time in our studios as a life choice. And I, all those Tati films are about him being out of step with the modern world. I think right. it's so easy. Besides the mise-en-scene of it and looking at composition... And watching things just move through these paintings, yeah. like a lot of his his like shots are, it's just it's easy for us to see ourselves in that position where it's like we walk outside and the, these little details that we pay attention to are the things that like we put in the art. You know, totally. the fact that we can focus on just that crack in the sidewalk, like those were the things that I feel like he was highlighting. You know, you watch a shot in Mon Uncle, and you know he's climbing up to his apartment and he moves the window to get mm-hmm. the bird chirping. You know, there's there's an attention to detail, which when the narrative moves too fast, you don't. There, I feel there's less of a relationship to painting. I, to- um, I totally agree, and I know that's completely selfish of me to like that sort of thing. <laughs> it was like my son wants me to just love the Avengers movies, mm-hmm. and you know, I just there's something about that slow kind of visual. I don't know. There's something about like noticing the little things, you know, mm-hmm. that I just I, I think that's really interesting, but. We yeah. don't have a stoic culture, though, either. You know, right. it's like we don't, we, in America, we respect our dead poets, but we don't respect our live yeah, poets. That's true. And, and then you have countries that do. And so, like, with Jarmusch falling in love with the Kurosmaki brothers, mm-hmm. like, it's, the slowness really reads as art, I think, in our culture for the people that can, can you know, digest that, I guess. Right. And, and the rest has become just content for us, but it's, or American culture, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a different speed, I think, yeah. and it's appreciated in different ways in different places, you know. And I think a lot of times, well, I mean, our our society is built on the capitalist idea of just getting ahead and like the next thing and, mm-hmm. you know, moving through. You move through ideas, move through images. You don't slow down. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find anything or you're not going to achieve if you slow the pace down of culture or look at things long and deep. <laughs> not appreciated, <laughs> you know what I mean, generally, you yeah. know. But in other cultures, that's, you know, that's 
kind of what your your reason of being in a way or like he, that's how you find a deeper it's like meditation you know mm-hmm. the ultimate like emptying out of everything to get a greater understanding not just like you know accomplish 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 exactly i mean what one of the my favorite anecdotes that i tend to think of to myself now since i talk to less people is that the <laughs> you the, have more time on your- <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's an interior yeah yeah <laughs> um is that Solomon Guggenheim and one of the other brothers from that generation, I'm blanking on his name, went to FDR to try to convince him to have the U.S. government sponsor the commercial aviation industry mm-hmm. because at that point in time, it maybe took six days to get from West Coast to East Coast or vice versa. And FDR heard them out and then goes, what's the point of getting there faster if you don't have anything new to say? And I mean, we accept that idiom in art, yeah. you know, like we are trying to slow down, like the value that we're trying to give in a, in something that's supposed to have no use value is just this pause, you know, right. like the longer people look at it, like the less they're, they're making war, you yeah. know, like the less they're stepping on someone's toes. That's true. Um, so it is, it, it is this forced meditation in the same way that like somebody that walks or somebody that's an, an ultra marathoner, they might not have an active or a traditional meditation practice, but is there whether they like it or not? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> totally true. And I'm getting more and more, I think these days with the more things develop, I get more and more aligned with the fact that, and I hate to do it in a way of feeling like art, there's something noble about making art because mm-hmm. it, it's not serving that purpose of, you know, the, the endless gears and the machine of like producing engineering, you know, entrepreneuring, and then the next, you know, giant thing invented that's going <laughs> to propel us forward, which I feel like more and more these days with the environment is just propelling us door, towards mm-hmm. the end of a habitable like globe. And, and you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I, I feel like, well, the art really is worth, <laughs> worth, oh, definitely. A lot. And it, and I know we all, anyone who sits in a room and devotes their life to making whatever they're making creatively really believes in that, you know, even if they're the most ironic, you know, kind of like tongue in cheek person in the world, they're still devoting all that time and effort to that form of expression. Obviously they believe in it, you know, but um, to believe in like a greater good because of that, mm-hmm. that you're not feeding into this endless you know, construction of something that's going to ultimately just destroy everything. <laughs> I don't know. I've been getting more and more aligned with that recently. Yeah. But then I, will, I worry that that makes me sound like, uh, you know, like, art is good for everyone. <laughs> and everything else is terrible. You know. Yeah, I think, like, the Big Lebowski came out at a great time, right? Like, we're talking about artists as... As the as Lebowski, right? right. Like yeah. he lived that the the dude lifestyle, yeah, so, yeah. so that you know we don't have to. And and just like where you know, Mary Oliver, who just passed away, um, she has this line in in a book of prose about how artists can't fly airplanes because like they need they need to look somewhere else, and they're not they're they're not consistent, you know. Like you right. don't want them behind the wheel. <laughs> That's true. Know? But yeah, yeah. like people that, that fly airplanes, we need them too. It's just as valuable. And buying into that sense of identity, or just even accepting it, I think is so important. Yeah, it it, it allows us to like provide that for other people, but mainly it it, it calls the people that choose choose to spend time and and choose to like look for something hopefully yeah the irony too i feel like recently 
there has been more value, especially as like teaching students who are in the creative fields. Mm-hmm. There is more of a, like kind of like a societal value or a cultural value on creativity mm-hmm. and art. But it's it feels like it's more in the sense of just serving the purpose of selling more goods or being more successful financially in whatever advertising or or you know production you know company that it's in you know what I'm saying or to sell something mm-hmm. it's becoming it has more value because you know people are selling goods understand well it has to look good or be inventive or creative for people to want to buy this stuff mm-hmm. but I don't feel like it's translating all the way over into like oh yeah we really need to value art because it's saying something about who we are that matters <laughs> and it's good to reflect and think about those things you know what I mean mm-hmm. but maybe it'll go <laughs> do you have those conversations with your collectors or do you th- you think that's a conversation that's usually a little more fenced in in, in the artist pen yeah I don't talk to collectors I don't I mean maybe a, a couple but I'm not really that's a conscious choice to, to I just not... don't no not really I just don't really come in contact with a ton of collectors I mean I, there's a few that that I speak with, that we have great conversations, but I guess I'm just a little less plugged into that that sort of, uh, I don't know, social connection, you know, with them. But yeah, that's an interesting idea. You you don't feel like, uh, I feel like uh, Jerry Salt's positions it as collectors have the disease, and really it's like the dealers and the artists that are the, the fun ones. Like that's for different, very different reasons, you know? Like dealers have to play chess yeah. if they're really good, and... And, you know, be able to make something out of nothing in a very different way that artists do. You know, like right. they have to provide that conversation. But it's not always rewarding talking to collectors. Right. But it's not a conscious decision for you. It's just the work. No, like, it's not. Yeah. It's just happenstance. I, I mean, I would... spend You spend I'll too much that. time with your students. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and talking <laughs> to other artists. Yeah. No, I just... Yeah, it's just I, I kind of go where the conversation is. And a lot of times I'm not hanging out with collectors. Mm-hmm. Not purposefully really but yeah um but i i feel like people who buy art even for those who are buying it as an investment or whatever i mean you kind of need something good about people supporting art Mm -hmm. you know but i guess yeah some of that is it goes two ways (laughs) i mean the money that i see like keeping the art world afloat is people buying with their ears not their eyes like right there is arbiters that decide who gets into whose ears but i tend to find at least you know you walk through the right openings or you're you're somewhere at the right time the conversations are more about who has what and it's about the like the luxury item is is the conversation that you can eavesdrop on behind the just just with the money and art but it's you know we still have to you know we're still the, the like the farmers we're still producing the crops we're not we're not selling it you do you know? think that holds true too for whether it's fashion or music or other creative fields that it's not always the people appreciating the creative person for what they're creating but also the other stuff around it you know i think to like some in, extent in art it could know. be the gallery they're showing at or mm-hmm. it could be someone else saying you should buy this because it's going to be worth money or, or this person's on the rise or whatever. Same with music. It could be like, these people are really good because they're recording with blah, blah, blah. And you know, they're going to be released on this. I don't even know if there's record labels anymore, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like they're aligned with these people. This is the next person or whatever. It seemed and, like it used to be right. Like yeah. A&R would determine who, who gets on a label, what type of advance. And then they would, they would have a budget to, 
to like tell everybody that this yeah. is this is relevant. But I think in a lot of the music that we listen to, it was all like the fans were deciding. Like the fans were deciding because it was it was like the price point was lower. You know, like you voted yeah. with your dollar in a way that doesn't exist in art. Art, I think, is still at least in our time judged by this cultural yardstick. Like. If the more fashion collaborations you can do as an artist, the more the more you exist in this cultural world that right. people kind of see it through. Like the the fact that our paintings might be in the same house of someone that bought a Banksy at auction. Yeah, like we would never probably curate our stuff into a show with <laughs> Banksy, but like we are judged by the same way. Like people yeah. are just acknowledging that it's there. Right, right. That's <laughs> oh, so interesting yeah. to think about. It's funny because you know. I guess most of the time as artists you get so lost thinking about your next thing or your projects and you know that you don't necessarily spend to do I have a lot of people a lot of artists I know that spend a lot of time worrying about secondary market stuff Mm -hmm. and you know how much their piece might sell at auction or people flipping and I'm so kind of like just focused on what I'm doing at at any given moment that I Mm -hmm. kind of don't put that much mental space in that arena and i don't even know that it's really controllable or that you can you know what i mean it's almost like that machine is doing its thing and you know you enter into it how you do Mm -hmm. and it manifests itself but um yeah it's it's difficult it's hard to juggle all the stuff you want to do mentally Mm -hmm. and put like like you're speaking about talking to collectors or you know following all those conversations or those ideas to their final destination in the mind when you're so busy trying to think, you know, I think most artists are almost plagued with this necessity to think of the next thing they want to do, you know, yeah. and not move back. Don't look back. Just like, what's the next thing I'm going to do? Yeah. You know, I think when we're at our best, we are constantly looking into the void. We are constantly dealing with our own existential crises. Yeah. But as soon, I remember the first time a piece of mine came up at auction and mm-hmm. I had to make that I, I watched to see what the prices were and it was the most nerve wracking thing and the feelings that I felt were as close as I've had to post show depression <laughs> except for a while it was going you know like we spend all this time making a show and yeah. then it doesn't matter after the show comes down right, and right. like how do you get back into it but if you can continue the focus on your own growth and and your existential crises in the studio yeah then a lot of that stuff doesn't matter and it'll you know, even out eventually, like I've listened to Kai Rizdahl and Marketplace enough to, to know that if you, you just keep your money in the stock market, it'll make money eventually. Right, right. So you don't, go. you can't, you can't try to, you know, like we don't have the algorithms or the supercomputers to, and I know very few artists that are wealthy enough to protect their own markets. Right. You know? Yeah, I know. It's, it, it's crazy, but I feel like, I think we were talking about it earlier. Um, if you, if you just love what you do or if you really make the studio time or doing what you're doing the most kind of like exciting or fun part, which I know a lot of people mm-hmm. don't have fun when they work. Yeah. It sometimes can be labor and not fun. Do those people have fun outside of their work? I, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> if they're making enough money, because obviously the money is the most important thing probably. Yep. But money, do- we know money doesn't bring happiness. Yeah. It, you know, it's what's that Kanye West phrase? <laughs> <laughs> making wait having money isn't everything but not having money is yes yes you know what i mean yes so like if you have a lot of money you may feel 
it's not going to save the world or make everything great, you know what I mean? But when you don't have money, that's you worry about that a lot. You yeah. know? It's like, I've got to eat. I've got to maintain a studio and all that stuff. But if you do love what you do and you really enjoy like making a show, say, then when you hang it, you the post-show depression, maybe you just, you're hanging it and you're glad that people are looking at it, but you're not banking all of your... like is what I did for the last nine months worth something yeah. <laughs> because I'm going to get a review or people are going to buy all of it or people are going to tell me how great it is. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like if you, if you just put more the, of the kind of investment in the making of the work, then maybe you're not quite as, you know, anxious about what's going to happen once you show it. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, In definitely. other words, like a live show, it's like if you really love playing the music, then even if there's only 50 people go see your show and it doesn't get, you know, people like press writing about it or whatever, you feel pretty damn good after Mm -hmm. the show. And, um, I mean, that's, that's idealist, I guess. But like in the band I was in, when we toured, we didn't play the huge crowds, you know, it was indie. It was like all small crowds and small venues and, but it always felt good to play in front of people, you know, even if there were only like 20 or 30 people there. Yeah, it allows it allows a conversation. The smaller the audience, the more intimate the conversation. Yeah. And like, if you believe in the work, like that's the thing that you're going after. Those ooey gooey feelings of just like connecting with an audience, even if it's just on stage. Like, right. You know, we have. I'm sure maybe you played bigger shows, or you have friends that are that have played. You know, thousands of people's shows. Yeah, yeah. And when they look out at the seas of faces, like. Hopefully they get a little ego stroke and they feel good about being a performer, but yeah. it's it's not looking at a crowd of twenty, you right? Know? And, and where people are like looking at you, like, yeah, like oh, I'm seeing this. It's like yeah. A, yeah, it's a different situation. Well, when you went to to Art Center, mm-hmm. did it change? I mean, was it a huge shift between that kind of personalized ability to probably talk to professors who were like, oh, here's a a student who's like, you know. They're hungry. They're, they they yeah. want to come in here and ask questions, and you know, getting that kind of environment and response, and then going to a place where I would imagine it's much more kind of like structured, and or you know, it's more common for for artists to be there in a sense yeah. of like I'm going to school to get a graduate degree, and I'm going to become a professional artist. You know, mm-hmm. how was that shift? Well, I guess I think for like while I'm still in Miami watching all these films and it was i think it's called passion this later like 80s godard film mm-hmm. where he's just like a a director is recreating all these classical paintings it was from watching film that i i would just learn that it's like oh shit i don't know anything about this field i don't mm-hmm. know anything about this field and so art really came to me at that point the first art basel started there and when i walked in through the entrance the first massive painting that you walk straight up to was a basquiat and eye level was a coffee cup stain like he had been working on the canvas on the floor and there's just this perfect coffee circle on there and i was like wow that like you get to actually live and if you're making art for yourself you know there's no collaboration that you don't have to polish things and i think that really opened stuff up for me and i and i don't i didn't know then if if like i wanted to make films that way or i wanted to make paintings that resembled films right and I went to grad school for film, but because it was Art Center, and I was there at the same time as um, like Sterling Ruby was in the grad mm-hmm. program, and there's a, like a few other people that now have, you know, real careers. Um, I, that art dialogue felt much more exciting to me 
than the film dialogue because people really just wanted to make commercials. And I already was getting into it just for myself. It didn't seem like I was going to have a career, but it seemed like a hobby that I should pick up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But um, from being around this professionalized atmosphere, I had a job in the library, and then I also worked at like a fancy video store. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was still continuing to watch films, but again, like skateboarding, I was burning out. Like I was reaching what I saw were my limits in that field, and it was really because I didn't want to collaborate and because like artists were more exciting, like mm-hmm. uh, Chinatown was was happening then, and there was a librarian, this guy Mark von Schlegel, who writes books for Semiotex, and he was just so generous for me to me, and we cracked jokes, and um, he got me involved with with the Chinatown art world, and I mm-hmm. knew how to. I was a, I took printmaking classes all through undergrad, and then in grad school, and then would just go to artist lectures at both times. But I was taking primarily film classes. And then I had to decide if I was going to try to switch into fine art or or not. And I dropped out two consecutive semesters mm-hmm. because, like, I realized I didn't want to teach and because I didn't have, like, a peer group. And also, film in L.A. was, like, the most boring, least conversational, <laughs> like, no dialogue whatsoever. Um, and going to Chinatown and seeing people drink, like, within my first week of making... Uh, so this... Joel Messler, who I've I've done shows with over the year and yeah. has represented me and now is in the Hamptons and um, making his own art and running a gallery in the summer. He ran a printing press and he just trusted me. You know, like he wanted the energy. He wanted the chaos. You know, like he thought a, a spinning bow tie held people's mo- attention more than like a, a long conversation, yeah. you know? And... I got to, yeah, so I dropped out of school and I was there with him and I started a a project space, which is really how I learned to talk about work, which I think is like the most important thing. And people that really go through the art education system and like learn, learn criticism and learn how to be critical, like they get that, but they also tend to get like an institutional trauma as well. Like it takes them a while to forget school. I never had that and I never had the the weight of history you know Mm -hmm. hunter s thompson gets his first keyboard or his first typewriter and he types f scott fitzgerald's great gatsby beginning to end because that was the thing that gave him the invitation where for me just like meeting the most exciting people in the room and getting to hang out with henry taylor as like a 22 year old Mm -hmm. and getting to hang out with all these other people that are having real moments and they were just generous because like they were just drinking together or doing all these things that we think about in communities and i never besides skateboarding and like obviously when you're in bands you have this kind of built-in community but as you get older and older it's harder to get those right like it's hard you we have to make our peer groups you know like like you're making these next generation of artists by telling them like what's important to you like you're you're passing on these values and just getting to step into that and people that appreciated me for just wanting to get my hands dirty. That was, was, you know, terrific. Like that was the real invitation. And then from doing my little project space and talking about my friend's work, I noticed that sense of, (laughs) that sense of trauma that they had about making work. And also they just, they thought their art was, was special, which it's not like their time in the studio is special and their commitment to that, to making art day after day is is special. And, and that was kind of how I wanted to make art. I I guess I had also written like a hipster musical, like a La La Land (laughs) 
Um, yeah, ahead of time. And, and Will Oldham, I had talked to him uh-huh. about being in it. And um, in hindsight, it's... I swear I did not know that. Really? I did not do you, that. When you brought that up? I didn't do the research. <laughs> I had no idea. So that's kind of funny. Yeah. Sorry. But no, yeah, no. I, I, did, I did not know that... The internet is a horrible archive, you know. I've had twenty solo shows, but like when people look me up, there there's two shows that show yeah. up, you know. So right, it's. Right. I think at that point too, like I thought I saw ego as the big problem. So this this movie, like I didn't put my name on it. It was almost like an anonymous movie. Obviously, the actors were being named, um, and so with with like the gallery or with all these other projects, like I started making drawings seriously. I, I mean, I was making these bad paintings in Miami and continuing to make bad paintings <laughs> in LA until I learned the language, but it was just my art therapy before then. And from these collaborative drawings that were completely free from a sense of like true like artist authorship, yeah. or just, at least in the way like art is transactional out in the world. Um, and from doing this gallery, I got curated into group shows and just having that freedom to just like make the work and people are being like, oh, is, is there something there? There's not. It wasn't, it wasn't, there was no selling. Like the, the getting money to make a film was devastating, yeah. you know, and just the compromises that are at every step. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had to, to put an animal to sleep, but like usually it's a process of going like, oh, this, this animal is sick. Like you keep adding incrementally in the money that you want to say, yeah, yeah, like spend on them and, until you have to deal with their quality of life issues right. and yeah. um, film getting a film fina- financed is is like okay can I make this compromise can I make this compromise and then eventually you look back and I didn't see the film that I had written you yeah. know totally changes <laughs> yeah I can't imagine I mean well that's you know kind of in a way the exact opposite of how artists work yeah where we're just you know making every decision it's like okay today i'm going to work on a small painting tomorrow i'm going to work on a small sculpture or a big painting whatever it is it's you you just it's your choice and whether you can afford the stretcher yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you know what i mean but yeah. with, i mean i know some artists work with production and they do large-scale things but you can scale down you know what i mean and it seems like film it's just you there there's got to be this giant structure i'm mm-hmm. sure some people make some films with like little resources or not that many people involved but it seems pretty difficult yeah and the structure of the the way they get you know it's almost like like in music with record labels i mean with films it's like production houses and all that stuff it seems daunting yeah I mean, in, in our life, I feel like the, the shift has been to people that get an MFA or a BFA, they go straight into to fabricating works. Like, it seemed yeah. like for me, like, the, the Matthew Barney getting his first show, like, it happened because he was supposed to have a gallery show. That gallery closed, and he had spent all of his life savings, mm-hmm. right, to make this body of work. Yeah. And now, whether it's a finish fetish or or things like it, it, there is a shift for that, but there's still room for, for guys like us that just want to like, you know, like make the thing and, yeah. and not have to deal with the dissemination or the, or the, the practice. Yeah. Maybe that's a little off topic. No, not at all. <laughs> well, so when you were in school there, I mean, did you, did you hit a crossroads in a way to where you were like, okay, I'm going to kind of like channel my efforts into my own yeah. studio work and that was facilitated by the the project space that was in was it in chinatown yep and it was in there was one one cul-de-sac bernard and 
Dan Hoog had a gallery and he mm-hmm. was the one that built out the space and now he runs Art Cologne but had just like an amazing program and he was really generous. David Kordansky started out that mm-hmm. building and then there was this printing press that I kind of ran and then there was this my project space which was like a walk-in or like a uh, about a seven foot wide closet mm-hmm. three feet deep that I ended up wiring for electricity put down a wood floor and put in a sliding glass so it was very much a vitrine um, but being around people like Dave and Dan Hoog and Joel Messler like I got every type of opinion that you yeah, could get in, in art and watching them grow or watching their trajectories change like Dave functions really highly like he understands how how the art world ecosystem works yeah. and watching him make moves was really exciting but also like Dan was really giving with his time and would talk about like he's I believe it's his grandfather was Mahoney Naj uh-huh. and you know he could just talk about art history like he had a like a wonderful sensibility and and again Joel wanted just the energy he was also recording music every day he had this the the printing press was called Pruess Press but he had a um like a music studio like a junky Chinatown studio that was there was empty bottles of Jameson everywhere but it was like people would hang out there after the bars closed and he would record everything so sometimes it was just Dave and him talking Mm -hmm. or sometimes it was Jack Hanley and him playing Grateful Dead songs or and I think a lot of my friends were musicians. They came from backgrounds out of art. I didn't start making art friends until later, until I could have that conversation. Yeah. And so the fact that it just like accepted all, like if you're an artist, like you just like live as an artist, mm-hmm. as opposed to like if you're in the film world, like you you always have to be accessible to get jobs. And it's, it's a professionalized conversation rather than a creative conversation. Yeah. Um, well, did uh, Joel give you, what, what were your first shows out there? And when did you feel like, okay, was it kind of like someone offered you a show where you were like, oh, I think I'm ready to share my work? <laughs> so Drew Heitzler, who did Champion Fine Art with his wife at the time, uh-huh. Flora Wegman, I gave him a show at my Project Space Trudy, and then through Champion Fine Art, they had moved to LA not so long ago, he curated a, a double space show at Elizabeth D. here in New York. Mm-hmm. And then at what was called Angstrom then, which, or no, I'm sorry, it was called QED, which was for Elizabeth D and David Quadrini. And there might have been another partner. Um, and so I had, I was making like artist books, I was making prints, I was making these collaborative drawings, but they were all under under Trudy. And the same with the film, like the um, the musical, it was yeah, it was, a, you know, again, separated from me. Yeah. But from that, and from just like Drew, like thinking that I kind of met his ideals about what he wanted, like how, how the art world could function or the artists that he wanted in it. I got some studio visits. And the first real studio visit I did was with Ali Sabotnik, who at the time was still doing Wrong Gallery or maybe had just finished. Mm-hmm. And... She was just really supportive. I think she was someone that could see it didn't matter if if you had a degree in art or not. And she just wanted different ideas out there. And then a collector who's now a a dealer, Shirley Morales, came to the studio. And I got, through David Quadrini, I got my first show because he, I mean, he's from Texas. And Eric Swenson and Daniel Johnson and Tree Carton all kind of came from him just like, he's kind of like a Rene Ricard figure where yeah. he was able to 
to look around and just see what was going on. But he's he's wired more like an artist. Like he's not not he can't sit behind a computer. Yeah. Um, but through that and and his passion, I was able to get a couple more shows. I did a show at Broadway 1602 here because mm-hmm. she had seen a painting that she thought was exciting through David. And then I did a show in Vancouver. I was working with a gallery there, Blanket, that was run by Sarah Macaulay and uh, Natalia Hoog, who now runs her. She's married to Dan Hoog and runs mm-hmm. a gallery in Cologne. Um, None of those shows sold. Or, or things got sold. I never got paid. And, and you know, when you're emerging artists and people are just betting if something's going to happen next. Right. Um, and I ended up writing some screenplays for collectors just mm-hmm. on spe- like they wanted their life stories told. Oh, really? So yeah, I, I took some months and like ghost ghost wrote their their life stories. Um, after having a long conversation with them, and I rented a storefront in downtown LA before before the lofts and before the turnovers and I worked there every day for a year like my my deal was like oh I got into the art world I did these shows but there's no money and now it's this decision of do you try to figure out a way to squeeze the money out of the art or like do you go for the love of it and my talk with myself was that if at the end of the year like I still liked it I'd find a way to make money um and then still make art or I was going to, you know, just back out of it and be like, Oh, I, art was another thing that I got to, to sponge off of and like right. make some great friends. And the Shirley Morales brought these collectors, the, the Horts, Susan and Michael mm-hmm. that are here. That was the first real visit that I had at the end of this year of working every year. And to talk about like the, the, the economy of means and, and how to make stretchers. This was a long, narrow studio, and I started making these four by eight paintings because mm-hmm. they were big enough for me. Like, I just never, I didn't have chops as a painting, and I didn't want to make, you know, knockoff Basquiat or something, something that showed my lack of skill level. And I would just work on them all day, every day, seven days a week for, for a year. And then the painting paint started to fall off. And that's how I started making the rip painting. So there was like a lot of growth, both for just like spending that much time painting. Like you, you learn how to make things happen on the canvas. Yeah. And luckily at the end of that year, like I felt really satisfied by it and people came in. And so yeah, it was Shirley and the Horts and they were like, wow, this is great. And but they were also blown away, I think, by just like the fact that I was living more the archetype of the artist and I didn't have, like, I wasn't professionalized. I wasn't talking, I wasn't giving them Deleuze quotes while I was walking <laughs> through the paintings. You know, they were just like, I had to move, it was such a narrow space that I, like, I only had one viewing spot for the painting. So it's like, you I had to, to move them. them out. <laughs> yeah. And it was at the end, end of the thing. So they were leaning on the sidewalls and I could bring one painting out for them at a time. So there was, I think like the ceremony of, of showing the paintings helped, but then Joel and Dan who came over and, and they were really supportive. So. Yeah. And that was, I think like when my, when I was able to start living off the work. Yeah. And when did, is this around the time when you started dream street? Um, was that Oh, so when I was in Chinatown and printmaking, Eric was touring, uh, Eric Mast, Iraq, yeah. who, you know, um, I think I'd made shirts for for Kyle Field Little Wings before. Mm-hmm. I, um, there was like a tour to Miami that was Calvin Johnson, Little Wings, and Jason Anderson, Wolf Colonel. 
they're all K Records people, but nobody toured to Miami. It's just too far down. And yeah. after Gainesville, there's that's still too. You know, people are driving eight hours for maybe for one you know, show. Yeah. yeah, and it's just, Miami didn't have that music scene. But meeting them and Kyle's such a personable guy. I'd made I made shirts with him like from a drawing, and then I think somebody put me in touch with Brendan Fowler and mm-hmm. Brendan Fowler. Bobby Birdman and E-Rock were doing tours together. And at the end of that tour, I met E-Rock and I'd given him some shirts. And then I made some shirts for him. Yeah. And then we basically started Dream Street as a almost like a male project. Like we don't, it's not a hive mind. We don't yeah. talk about what we're doing. It's we kind of just like make things, send them to each other to make ourselves laugh, you know, yeah. or like, or almost, I guess, participate in culture more on a, a paradigm that works like music. You know, like we could yeah. either sell things or give things away at a much lower price. Right. But again, it was still about being able to do things without putting Matthew Chambers on it. Yeah. And and to not have that baggage and also to like not be tied to that like sense of self. Well, it's so funny because I remember seeing the show. It was it Zach Space. With the flowers, or yeah. okay. well, you had all the giant books, books, yeah, in the middle of the gallery, and seeing those and knowing that those are there's a lot of Dream Street imagery mm-hmm. in there that I've seen on the shirts. But I'm sure like 98 percent of the people who went in there had no idea, yeah. yeah, of that connection between the two things, which is kind of fun to have like a project yeah. that you know what I mean that they're so connected in a way in process and imagery is there's a lot of imagery that mm-hmm. crosses over there, but. People would never know. I think for me, it's nice to compartmentalize my my process. Like yeah. I want to have, or more that you're only able to have certain conversations with certain people. And I didn't want to. I wanted to talk to everyone. You know, if I could give them all a hug, I wouldn't have to make the art, right? right, right. Um, but I think the way that I make silk screens, there's no photographic chemicals. It's like I make a drawing and then I I paint a silk screen on top of it. So. It was always something I'd do in the morning. It was the warm-up before going to the studio. And it was also something, you know, like I can't give an artwork to all my friends, but I can give them 40 T-shirts. And it felt like I was alive in different ways or like participating in a community in ways that I really wanted to. And also I really wanted to make things that like when I... I didn't want it to be branded. Mm -hmm. And if someone was wearing one of these shirts, like... I would go talk to them, you know, and that's been the interesting thing I think for Eric and I is that people that I, you know, Eric lives in Portland and people that get shirts from him or get shirts from me that I don't really know through him when they run into somebody else, like the the six degrees of separation really becomes two degrees or something (laughs) like that. So it's more when people are wearing dream street and they run into each other without Eric and I, there's, is great but you know it when you see it exactly so yeah. wait and which is funny because i guess you guys are both drawing in a somewhat similar mm-hmm. method of that quick you know the kind of look of it yeah was I, that happenstance or did you just did it start to come closer <laughs> together over the collaborations i think probably that i think the like the the way you paint screens dictates a little. Like you That's can true. only get to like sharpie size lines. Yeah. Um, we using block out fluid and yeah, drawing fluid, drawing fluid and then and, and then the blocking. Out. Yeah. So it's, normally I'll draw a positive, but I've I've messed around with all of it. Yeah. But it's usually because it's coming from drawings, and I was never a comic person, but like I like that direct form of communication. Yeah. Um, and it's like the flower paintings. I wanted people to stand in front of it and not have to 
question if they understood the aesthetics of it. Yeah. Like it's very direct. Um, but I think Eric, he was a kid that always drew. Like you hear story, like my, a couple summers ago, I just heard this story where he started kindergarten. He was always a doodler and he got yelled at for drawing like on the second day of class and got sent to the principal. And since then he hated school. Um, you know, like, <laughs> and he's just like, supporting just, my yeah, let, let me draw. Right. And I was never that kid. Like I'm more in my head. It's more intellectual or conversational yeah, yeah. for me. Um, so, Eric can learn skill sets that really allow him to draw. And Mm -hmm. I draw to kind of facilitate a conversation. So I definitely learn things from him and I think vice versa. But he's just someone that's really great trying things in all fields. Like he is, he's an artist and, but not in a way that you can identify him other than like supporting a scene. Like if you meet any young person in Portland, they either got into half of the music they're into because of him working and curating yeah. at like a record store mm-hmm. from, you the know, label. he's put on shows. He has, he's done three or four labels. Like he's done a magazine. He's done videos. Like he's done animations. Like he has really affected culture in a way that's like not tied to like his, his name, you yeah. know? And I think you know we, you and I both appreciate that out of him. Like he's he's yeah, doing a, something that we lost can't thing too. It's, yeah. it's almost like a, a romantic idea of someone who's creative of building their own. Yeah, it's kind of like the teacher who says you don't draw and then you go off and you find a new way to make it happen. It almost feels like, you know, building the community mm-hmm. of you know collaborations and you know. I was laughing before as you were talking about that because I thought of spoiler room and yeah yeah. <laughs> ridiculously great that is yeah you know and I, I don't even know if those really exist or like if it happens in the public realm or if it's you know or if it's just in someone's bedroom or what's happening there but the idea of it is such a great you know it's kind of like the diy like mm-hmm. real like we're gonna do this how we want to do it exactly and Which he puts a, he puts a ceiling on how far the ideas could go like you can't sell spoiler room because of boiler room you know right. and spoiler room right, right. came out because like he he also and the other guys that he does it with want like people that are non DJs to play their music so they might have someone I remember they had one with a girl that was you know from Polynesian or something and mm-hmm. she's playing traditional like it's almost like a tourist journey through her her cultural her culture's music yeah. and Eric's really good at inviting that in like he's a great DJ and like I've seen him rock a crowd and he's also the funniest person you've ever met right. you know like, yeah yeah but yeah, spoiler room is great because like yeah, some of them are just in like a dude's like the laundry room at the dude's apartment, right. and some of them are on illegally on an island or like right behind the freeway. Um, right. Like they don't exist to like get parties for people to pay money. They're just they want like cool shit to happen. Yeah, they just yeah. want to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which and that seems aligned to what you're doing too because you're mm-hmm. more. I don't know if it is that explicit but it just feels like your work is getting at what you want to get at yeah it's making what you're interested in either i feel like there's a duality in some of it to where like part of it is driven by this process like an investigative process of things Mm -hmm. and the other side is a sort of relationship to images that may have been imprinted on you in your youth or you know in the past like looking at you know the new show the show Mm -hmm. that's up now and there was like Looney Tunes imagery, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up on Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny like informed my sensibilities, my of aesthetic course. sensibilities in a major way for some reason. It's just one of those early things that 
like Warhol being from Pittsburgh was big for me. Yeah. I always saw Warhol around, you know. Well, Looney Tunes I spent. I wasn't into comic books. I wasn't into like manga or anime or any of that stuff. It was like Looney Tunes. Bugs yeah, Bunny was my thing, exactly. You know, yeah. and I loved it. And I think to this day, like my aesthetic is like somewhat informed by that stuff. Oh, definitely. And it, I feel like you know you're tapping into. I mean, there's a humor, there's a rawness, and then there's this sort of like it almost feels like um, fractured memories or something. Mm-hmm. Is that the intent, or is that involved yeah. there? I mean, I think I've had various phases, like the. The first show, before that Zach Fourier show, I had done a few shows of these four by eight paintings that for mm-hmm. the most part were figurative oil on, on canvas and also starting to work with these rip paintings of, you know, I wanted it to be about like the act of painting. So it didn't matter that you saw the painting, but you can see glimpses in those earlier ones of like, oh, that's, you know, that's somebody's nose or things yeah. like that. Um, at that point I was trying to, yeah, just make sense of this flood of images like, like, it's all a lot for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard for me to tune into my own head a lot of times because I hear everything else. So it was a process of me slowing down and, and really comprehending these images. At a certain, in like 2011, um, Brendan Fowler and I shared a studio, and there was a massive studio fire that started at another warehouse and then a, a lawsuit that, that happened later. Mm-hmm. And... I lost like 80 paintings. That's and the worst. Yeah. <laughs> That's like every artist's nightmare. Yeah. But I, I, luckily I got to see them burn. Like uh, my assistant uh, and there was another artist that we were working on collaborative works. Like we called 911 and had to call twice as it spread to our building. So mm-hmm. watching things burn, like Brendan wasn't at the studio and he lost things too. But like because he didn't get to see them go up, mm-hmm. it was... It's like when when your girlfriend breaks up with you and just disappears and she yeah. never talks to you. There's, this, There's no face to face. Yeah, you like, lose oh, a sense gone. of closure. Yeah. yeah. Um. So after that, it took. I mean, both like dealing with the PTSD of like running in and out of a, a burning building, and yeah. then for me, just being a sensitive person, like trying doing depositions and being involved at this crazy lawsuit that every we were the only individuals. Everyone else was insurance companies, so. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had anything at stake. They just if they could prove if they if they could say that like this was partially our fault, like we didn't get money out of the pie, you mm-hmm. know, and and those two things really like messed me up in the studio. Like I couldn't go back to just that pure youthful place of just digest, digesting images. And so the practice kind of shifted and now where I'm at, like, I feel like I'm back to that. Like all these new paintings, you know, they're four feet by five feet and I mm-hmm. make a four foot by five foot drawing and all my art wiggles come out on that. But I live super rurally now and I almost think of these paintings as like adult illustrations, like my rural neighbors who all have different backgrounds. Some have have high culture in their, mm-hmm. you know, in their blood and in their experience and most of them don't. So I'm, I was trying to figure out ways to get these things that are in in me to talk to them and and yet still like i like that there's actual paintings happen like the painting process is these silk screens like in the way that i make dream street but because for the the time now that i make work is usually in the winter like that's my my deepest time like i'm no longer wearing t-shirts for six (laughs) months out of the year and like the way people work at least in, in a rural community like they don't identify you but what you're wearing like 
in New York City now, we walk down the sidewalk. We don't look at people in the eyes, but like we go like, oh, that person's into rave culture. Right, like, right. like there's these signifiers that we see to identify their tribes, and I don't deal with that at all. So making shirts has like been pretty moot for me. Like I, I love Agnes Varda, so it's like mm-hmm. I make an Agnes Varda shirt for myself, but I'm not participating and I'm not expect. I don't think of these things out in the world. So that language and and like how fun and how free it is for me to make the drawings and just get to process like how I want to talk and and like figure out like more on a, like a like a thesis paint you know like a, there's a thesis for each painting in the in the conversations that I want to have and then the show ends up being grouped and how I talk about it like the there's the second floor that has like a painting of um like uh, Robert Bresson's um, L'Argent. Mm-hmm. There's one of Taxing Woman, this Juzulatami movie. And then there's a scene from Agnes Varda's Vagabond with like a, a woman with dirty hands and a woman with clean hands and nail polish. Mm-hmm. And I forget what the other painting on that, that floor is. But it's all, for me, that's a conversation about, um, you know, just like I can talk to my neighbors through those things about how money functions. And yeah. each one of those, I have a, like a, different perspective but i like now i'm figuring out how to how to group things where before so chris marker has has this saying where it's like if you're in the movie theater you're you're there for two hours and one hour is in darkness one hour is in light you know there's persistence of vision and the edward edward moybridge way like we get to see the horse running but it's really like a photo of of the horse's legs up and the horse's legs down Um, and it's that time in the darkness Chris Marker said that like we walk away with it's the time that our minds connecting these things Mm -hmm. that really works and so the the earlier paintings and how they group for me was about people making their own narratives like putting these images that I've digested and then were able to let go people were able to talk to me about like this means this to me and I really wanted to like not be the author of how people experience the work. I just like, it was for me just about making the work and which is why like the rip paintings made sense to me. And now I think there's been a shift. Like I still, I want to be the author. I want to just like be firm in my boundaries about the things that I want to talk about, but mm-hmm. I want the language to invite people to stand in front of it. Like the, the flower paintings that started at Zach Foyer were, I was, I was exp- with, with my assistant that was, Andrew Kennedy that was with me during the fire, we were trying to go through and be like, okay, what paint, you know, like what painting was that? Like what, what got lost? And the way he would describe a painting was totally different than the way I would describe a painting. (laughs) And, and the experience of people seeing work, like if, if, if I got too into painterly concerns, like they weren't seeing the same things that I was seeing, which was probably fine in hindsight but like i didn't know how to talk to them so the flowers were were, someone could at least acknowledge that they saw the you know the one with blue flowers with yellow centers and they you know i was able to think about color in a way that i wasn't when i'm just moving around oil or acrylics like i don't think about um so a little bit (laughs) i i totally respond to to that idea i mean in my work i'm really interested in the like the space between paintings. Yep. And that Chris Marker quote is really interesting because I think that's what it, it's getting at is like the way you bridge two moments together, mm-hmm. you know. Like La Jete is one of my favorite. Oh, it's so time. good. And um, all my friends wrote at, used to, when I was in graduate school, they had a, they assembled a band together and 
created music to La Jate and they played it live wow. in front of the movie. Like they would screen it. <laughs> so good. So, which is like a bold thing to do in a way because, it, you know, but it was... That it, movie's about stillness. So yeah. I imagine adding a soundtrack must have changed the experience completely. It was beautiful, huh? though. Like the, the way they did it was really spot on. Yeah. But it was really nice. But um, yeah, that, that kind of... what The meaning in between images, I think, is so important. It's mm-hmm. something that's probably not talked about as much because it's, it's probably harder to speak to it than just that one image that you see and like, oh, this means this because it's got that in it or, you know, it's made this way. Yeah. But, you know... What does it mean like when you have like a show of eight to ten images? Like, what's the space in between each image, and how does that inform, or you know, what's that leave in the viewer's mind? I'm, yeah. I'm always so interested in that, and it's it's been nice too, like working with um, animation and moving images, which I never. Oh yeah, like doing. having to find that space in between and and what it is. Huh? Yeah, and how that informs the still work too, mm-hmm. because then that changes the way you see. The, the you know the still images the paintings in relation to that movement it's mm-hmm. kind of a nice there's that gap too which is a whole different kind of gap than than the, those in between the stills I don't know I think it's that you know it's it's a really it's kind of like an endless pit for <laughs> you don't think of your paintings now as just keyframes yeah exactly <laughs> it's the tween it's all in the tween <laughs> which is funny because I thought that way you know before. You know, I've always been interested in like what what this painting next to that painting means. Like, mm-hmm. how does it change the relationship between the paintings? But then, when you're actually animating and you're moving things, it's kind of like doing that. Like, this is the space in between. What is that? What is the transition like? Yeah. And that's like something that you know. I guess people will ask you like, well, what's different about the moving images and the still images? Like, how do you do it differently? And I think that's one of the main things is like thinking about you know transitions and the the space in between totally changes yeah. and for me it's been a really healthy way to think about it i guess you came to it more from investigating the film the story the narrative the movement and then and having that inform the way you go about these still images and what that the totality of that says or kind of like communicates to yeah. the viewer so and and this the show that's up now in Marinero, mm-hmm. um, it's three floors. Mm-hmm. So, was that also a thing? Like, how am I going to install this? How, you know, how will the the viewer kind of move through the space? Was that on your mind? Yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to group. It's, you know, I'm a, I was, I'm a, I'm a late bloomer in in every field, but it's because like my mind works. Like, I want to understand the systems, and once I found the way that it's easiest for me to communicate. You know, you try to translate that to mm-hmm. these different forms, be it writing or, or visual. I realized I work through metaphors. Like, that's how I digest concepts, you know. Um, and so I wanted to make a show that kind of works through. I mean, I said conversations, but it's really these metaphors. Like, we up on the computer screen now. We have an image of this dumb painting that I made of the Plinko board Listen, from Price is Right. You know how many hours I spent watching <laughs> <laughs> hanging in the balance of whether that thing was going to bounce into the right spot. Yeah. I mean, I think of this as the metaphor for how many people think of their lives as out of their control. Like, they don't think about where they're dropping it, and they all want the $100,000 mm-hmm. slot, but, like, they they don't accept responsibility for the fact that they can, like, move that hockey puck a little to the left or a little to the right. Like, we're not going to get our exact goal, but, like, 
we have to make goals, you yeah. know, like it's, it's like hang gliding. You like poke your, you know, the, the tip of the hang glider up to try to, you know, go as high as you can and not hit the mountain. But like, you're not going to go that high, right. but like you have to keep reaching for it. And yeah. yeah there's a, there's a, lot, a lot of people feel like, I just hope it happens for me. Yeah. They're you not know, proactive. Like, and the culture yeah. of like, well, hopefully it's like hitting the lottery or something. Yeah. Like maybe I'll be lucky one day instead of like, you know, actively doing everything you can to put yourself in that position or to create things. And mm-hmm. yeah, I guess it's a, a mentality of it. I mean, I think like moving to Montana for me, like besides all of like the art profession and like, wanting to to make better art and me seeing that is moving to someplace rural as the way to do it like i really want to be involved in the community and i have 10 five-year plans of how i'm doing it mm-hmm. but the, the goal is to show to creatives and non-creatives that like apathy is kind of bullshit you mm-hmm. know like you can change like the temperature of the water in the bathtub but like you're not going to make it hot just because you're hot you're going to make it warm because there's a lot of other stuff out there but like the more we care, the more like we exist in the social fabric, we also create a value for artists in it too. And I just, I need that to be out there. Otherwise, like I can't get up in yeah. the morning, you know, not in a depressive way, but it's just like, I, I, like, that's what I need out there. Like I need to care and like, I don't have kids like you do, but like, I need to believe in, in a couple of generations ahead of me is, is going to maybe take some of these these lessons and i think we also like once you get to a certain point in your art career like you your peers are in in either haven't been born yet or they're in history it doesn't need to be your contemporaries you know like like we are just part of this extended tapestry so finding ways to exist that like welcome those invitations that you got and pass them on to the next generation like is really really important yeah Well, I would, I would hope too that it's valuable that you're a lot of people who are creative or want to make change through that kind of community. They just go to the place where it exists, mm-hmm. like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or Atlanta or whatever. But going outside <laughs> of that, right, yeah. and hopefully creating those you know spaces outside of where it's just expected is valuable too, because then you're you know you're in dialogue with a and creating a community in a different you know, place where it probably needs it. Yeah. I feel like a lot of middle America these days feels like almost like a victimization of, you know, the lack of, you know, um, kind of like industry and jobs for them. Mm -hmm. And and this feeling like, well, like the same feeling I'm talking about, well, I kind of hope I hit the lottery or I'm screwed, you know, and, and that you can actually go out there and like make opportunities and, and, you know, push for that stuff. Yeah. is important. I drove the work for the show out myself and needed that to just kind of like let the landscape wash over me. Mm-hmm. But America, besides the coast, there's so much poverty. And outside of that, there's a cultural poverty. Yeah. You know, like we get into even cities like Minneapolis or something like it's provincial. You know, yeah. like the way they think creatively is provincial. There are people that think bigger, you know, like I, I love the Astor Gates you know, like the way mm-hmm. that he functions, but like he's not every artist in Chicago, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, wanting wanting to put those values there, and really, I want to talk to all these cowboy kids and 
so they don't become Trumpers, you know? Right. Like, I want them to have sensitivities that are kind of being beat out of them. Um, there's a, just a creative drain. <laughs> and I think a spoiler room. Spoiler room. <laughs> well, we did a spoiler room on my property really? this last last year. It's hard. Like, I live in kind of a, like a stoner, Grateful Dead ski town for the most part. There's yeah. a college, but, like, people are, they're supportive culturally, but, like, they don't know how to value this stuff yet. So there's right. a, you have to get to like a critical, critical mass, right? Before they're just like, it's like they the one exchange it. student where they're yeah. like, oh, that, <laughs> this is the weird, they, they have an accent. I don't really yeah. understand where they're coming from. <laughs> Food's okay. You know, like stuff like that. But when it's a bigger community, you start to like actually, yeah, you know, communicate and, and change your way of thinking maybe. Yeah. Well, um, so everyone should see your show, which is up now. How long is it up? It's I think it's I mean it's a, I think it's a pretty tradi- yeah. Few more weeks. Yeah, because it just, just opened this last Thursday. Yeah, at Marinero on the mm-hmm. Lower East Side. Yeah, and uh, is there any other places or ways that people should follow you or get information on what you're doing besides the Dream Street website? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have my I've, I I have an internet through a satellite, so I'm not very. E connected, and for the most part, Eric runs the the Dream Street. Yeah, in you know the both the, the online presence and the, the Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, from yeah, for me, I'm I'm just trying to do do the best artist job that I can. But it's gonna you know it's gonna take a second. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to meet after all these years. I feel yeah, like I feel- tangentially related, and you know we both show at Hezzy Cohen Gallery. Mm-hmm. And, like we've had some. It's a lot of crossovers. Crossover, so it's, it's good to finally meet and have yeah. you over here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That that Chris Martin podcast like really gave me the, the warm tingle. Man, he's so. a good he's a good guy, right? Yeah. He's, he was a great some sometimes you talk to someone, you're like, I'm really glad I had that talk. And mm-hmm. he was definitely one of those. I'm not so gonna say that after this. I'm totally <laughs> saying that. <laughs> All right, thanks. Man. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Yeah, that was a lot of Sound and Vision is recorded, produced, edited, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more images from the podcast that I do on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. You can see more images of my work at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors and the New York Studio School for their support of the podcast. And thank you to all the listeners.